You're listening to the horror. Welcome to the horror. <laughs> I'm Owen Edgerton, and I like horror movies. I'm Russell Sharman, and I like movies. <laughs> Period. And, and and today we're discussing the neo classic. Oh, Doctor Sleep. Wow. Doctor Sleep. That sounds premature. Uh, to say neo, I guess it has to be. Sure. Yeah. yeah. As long as that qualifier is there. Hey, don't don't your students uh, call you Doctor Sleep? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Thank you. You should take been, that on the road. I've been work- saving that. <laughs> um. So so we should clarify. Last week, or not last week, the last episode. Yeah. Uh, you posed the challenge mm-hmm. to to watch. Catherine Bigelow's um, early delve into horror near dark. Yes. And apparently that movie is so bad that oh, gosh. she has bought up all of the copies and it is completely unavailable. It is a brilliant film. We will watch it. I, I, I should have actually done a little looking around, but I was so excited for the opportunity to have you watch Dr. Sleep. Uh, so it seemed like a great opportunity. And I didn't know that films actually made it to Arkansas, where I'm so glad you were able to see a, a movie in a theater. Now, see, you just lost all three of our listeners in Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, to be honest, I, I will say it, it, it has been a bit of a struggle because sometimes we don't get some of the more obscure titles, though I wouldn't call Dr. Sleep an obscure title. And in fact, would this is one of the, the first times we've discussed a film that is currently in theaters. Mm-hmm. So That's I do true. think we need to be careful about spoilers on this one. We always say that, but we really need to be careful on this one because I really don't no, want to spoil it. I say this. I think we can't not talk about spoilers. I, I think I think if you're now listening and you're like, oh, I haven't seen that movie yet, understand that we are going to be discussing the movie, including the things that happen in the movie. <laughs> well, I'm going to do my best not to give away too much because oh, I think I'm we can gonna... still talk about this movie without giving away too much plot. I'm going to spoil the shit out of it. Okay. <laughs> they go back to the Overlook people. <laughs> okay. Well, we're off to the races now. Yes. Okay. So l- a little background before you, you uh, jump into your tirade or whatever. So the film based on the novel by Stephen King called Dr. Sleep. It is a story of Danny, basically a little boy in the original novel. What happens to him when he's older? Mike Flanagan had worked on a Stephen King adaptation before. He did Gerald's Game, which was a beautiful film based on a Stephen King novel. He got the okay for Warner Brothers, actually read his cool essay that he wrote about how it came to be. But to to uh, to do the film adaptation, he worked really hard of like, I want to represent two of my heroes here. He's a huge Stephen King fan. He's a huge Kubrick fan, specifically The Shining, and he wanted to do a film that honored and felt like a continuation of both. Uh, and and in my opinion, did a brilliant job. Uh, and I I loved the film. I really loved the book. I thought it was great. I love the film. I I uh, I was scared. I cried a couple of times. And then I get to talk to my heartless, soulless friend, Russell. What did you think? Well, now I may be heartless and soulless. But, but it's a fine film. There's nothing wrong with this movie. It, it, uh, it, I can't critique necessarily its craft, though I will critique some elements of story. 
I think the focus of my commentary is going to be more, well, in some ways connected to your earlier jab at Arkansas, which oh. is <laughs> that, you know, some more obscure movies don't always make it to the multiplex in Northwest Arkansas. Dr. Sleep is not that movie. Dr. Sleep is a big studio movie. And like most big studio movies these days, to me, was entertaining, but it had none of the the sort of mis- mysterious, uh, freak-out, uh, shaggy edges that Kubrick's masterpiece has. It's a kind of neutered version of that film. Uh, an amusement park ride, if you will. That's fun, but I, I don't know that it... I don't even know that it really is a horror movie, except that it's got the branding of The Shining. Otherwise, there's some chilling things that happen in it, I suppose, but uh, it just kind of feels tame. That silence is not a mistake of the podcast (laughs) recording. Your listening device is acting properly. It is is my disappointment. (laughs) I'm saying it's, it's, it's fine. It's a good movie. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, was, was it the corpse of the toddler? Was that the tame part or the uh, eight-year-old boy having the soul sucked out of him by a, a collection of vampire-esque people? Was, which part was the tame part? Okay, those two are like the two chilling moments, uh, I will agree. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I was just going to correct. Was the 15-year-old uh, causing the guy to come out and then have nightmares for the rest of his life before cutting his face in the movie theater? Or was when she told another man to shoot himself with his own gun? Was were those the tame parts? Well, those actually, I, 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 I thought you would see those in any kind of thriller. Uh, they didn't seem that outrageous to me. Oh, so I see hard now. So you, you're... You, you, you can't have a candy unless it's pure sugar. Well, well th- this goes to our, the crux <laughs> of our ongoing conversation. And, and part of that is what is horror. Yes. And you have a real resistance to defining that. And that's fine. You can allow it to be like pornography where we're not really sure. We know it when we see it. I'm just suggesting that having watched The Shining recently with you. Yeah. And then watching this film, they are in two different worlds that in terms of their style, the, the uniqueness of their vision, this movie, and don't get me wrong, I love studio movies. Warner Brothers bought our first script and they might actually make it now. Look, yeah. Uh, so I got nothing against Warner Brothers or studio takes on uh, genre or on right. old material, IP, uh, but it is of a certain flavor. And this movie does, does fit into that kind of studio flavor of yeah it's it's got some some quote unquote horror moments but to me they feel like nods to the genre which is an otherwise pretty sort of lowest common denominator storytelling in this movie. Okay let then let, let's start with this. Uh, I mean first of all I, I you were I remember when you saw the trailer for this film you 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 had this exact fear that it was going to be a studio version of uh, uh, a, a sort of typical studio film. First of all, also let's remember The Shining wasn't some indie filmmaker. <laughs> it was like Kubrick yes. and his, yeah, like, and the book had been a bestseller. It, it, all of that, but I understand what you're saying as well. Uh, first of all, whether it fits into the definition of horror, uh, uh, without a doubt, it does. Uh, you know, th- there's th- not only with the aspects of like the genre aspects of the supernatural, these sort of vampire esque. Uh, the knot, 
uh, and the way they suck the life from children and hunt children, but but also even like the experiences of 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 uh, dream sequences and and other things. I think it's fair to say, and it's pretty damn violent. Uh, it's actually more violent than the novel. The, there's more people die in this. I would than... even I would go I would go further. I would say it's I don't know I, I'd have to think about this, but I think it's more violent than than Kubrick's The Shining. Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know, Kubrick's The Shining has one really actually one on-screen death because even Jack we don't really see him die, so he only has one on-screen death. The the rest are all depicted as something from the past or you know Jack's body at the very end, but but. I think, though, and this is why I think maybe it's it's a cool conversation. Almost all the horror movies that we've really watched have had a kind of indie flavor to them. We've definitely watched, like, The Thing was a studio film, of course, The Shining, and, and a few others. But we really have watched a lot of, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Night of the Living Dead. And it has seemed like, and I celebrate this, too, that there's, like, a, a frightening aspect when you don't know... When you know that the filmmaker is somewhat off the leash, sure, and 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 in this case, of course, you do know, like, oh no, this this filmmaker was on the leash because the leash owned the rights to the book, <laughs> <laughs> and so that, I I understand what you're saying there. Well, and 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 to your point, you know, in terms of, and I I I'm being somewhat tongue in cheek. Obviously, the movie is is at least wants to be firmly in the genre of horror. Uh, I understand that's its marketing, and that's where it wants to live. I just think that when you compare it to the original, uh, Kubrick had, like you say, this, this real, I mean, not only was he a master craftsperson in terms of filmmaking, so I, I felt I was in good hands, but at the same time, uh, it, was, it was about a tone. It was about a feeling. It wasn't about plot. It wasn't about so gross-out moments. It wasn't about violence. It was about creating an uneasy feeling that grew and grew and grew. And I didn't feel this movie shared that DNA. I felt this movie was much more in the sense of a kind of studio entertainment. It was all about plot. It wasn't necessarily about removing any mystery. In fact, one of the biggest problems I have with it is the fact that it tried to explain everything that was a mystery about the original. Uh, and I think I maybe even mentioned this word to you in a text afterwards, but it's kind of the midichlorian approach to Star Wars, where instead of it being this mysterious evil or whatever you want to call it, we've got this, I guess they're vampires. I don't know what they are. I suppose that's a spoiler, but it felt very much to me like, I don't need, I don't want this, Not much less need it. Okay, all right, all right, let's pause for a second. Let's go through these one by one. All right, first of all, I would say you're right. This film, so The Shining the book has a lot more plot in it than The Shining the movie. And, and I agree, Kubrick's work, which has very little plot, is beautiful. It's a masterpiece. It's one of my favorite films ever done. This movie is a different kind of movie. I, I'd, I hear what you're saying, that it's not the same kind of movie. Thank God. Thank God you didn't have Mike Flanagan, who is not Kubrick. It's not his style. It's not that he didn't try and do a, a replica, like another family goes to the Overlook. Uh, you know, that would have been horrible. What, it, it does beg the question, and I'll get, I know you got a point, but it does beg the question, then why do it at all? And to me, that's the most studio part of this whole exercise is the desire to rehash IP for the sake of rehashing it. And maybe some things are just left as singular experiences. 
Totally. I can see that. I'm, I'm, you're probably not a fan of 2010. Uh, I can't, I don't even have a memory of 2010. I know Roy, I've seen Roy, it, but I can't remember it. Roy Schneider, pretty brilliant. So, so I think this one, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. It's true. I'm sure people were talking about The Shining 2 before, before Stephen King wrote his book. But, um, but Stephen King did write a book that I think is actually a pretty cool companion to The Shining. Uh, and, and the way someone put it to me early on was The Shining is about alcoholism. And Dr. Sleep is about sobriety and living sober, uh, not even about just getting sober, but living sober. And, and I think that's sort of where King was coming from, of reexamining this, this story. And I, I actually, I went into that novel skeptical with a feeling of like, why do I need to go back to this? But really loving that novel. And so I hear what you're saying, like, does, was this a necessary movie? I, I don't know what movie is necessary. And was it stepping on holy ground? Without a doubt. Uh, uh, but did I love it? I really did. I really did. Well, and, and again, I, I want to say to, to all the listeners out there, you should see it. In fact, you should see it in the theater. Yeah. And, and I say that because it is, it is entertaining. It, it's unfortunate that it has to be compared to Kubrick's. But, but it is entertaining. And we, we need to show studios that we will go see movies like this. And I mean, I think one of the elephants in the room with this is that this movie did not and has not done very well. No. Uh, in fact, I saw it. I mean, granted, it was sort of afternoon on a Friday, but it was a Friday uh, a couple of weeks into its opening. And I was the only one in the theater, mm. which was sad to me. And, and as much as I rail against the way studios have veered more toward the international market, which means creating material that is more, uh, well, I guess less about the sort of style and tone and more about plot and more about uh, special effects, et cetera. You know, when we get a movie like this that is complicated, that has twists and turns, that's over two hours long, like I, I want to celebrate that these exist in a theater. And, and I will also say that I think Flanagan does do some things in the movie that I smiled when I saw them. The slow dissolves are very oh, much yeah. a nod to Kubrick and they're yeah. worthy of Kubrick, some of them, uh, where it really feels like it's evoking a tone uh, that, that I really loved about the original. Are there tiny little things that I noticed, like uh, the address of Abra, who is the, the sort of the yes. Danny of this movie, the young child? Uh, her address is 1980, which I thought was kind of cute. Um, the fact that Abra, when she talks to Danny through telepathy, is lying sort of in the same position Halloran was on his bed. She's lying in her bed. Oh, so cool catch. There's this like, and so is Danny at that point. So that sort of echo of the original. And of course, the whole dynamic between Abra and Danny, Danny now as played by Ewan McGregor, I really like that echo of that relationship, even in terms of the race re reversal between mm -hmm. the young Danny and the older Halloran. Also, I think the casting's great. Whoever yeah. that is playing Shelley Duvall, it's crazy. Oh my gosh. Is yeah. that wild? I don't understand how she does it with her voice unless it's... they got Shelley Duvall to dub it. Uh, I know. It... That one scene when she's running out to him at the park bench in Florida. Yes, Danny! Exactly. I was like, oh, what? Yeah. It was uh, yeah. so there. There are many flourishes that I enjoy, and I do think people should see it. 
did you catch Russell? I just want to, on, on the little things, of course we go back to, you know, they reconstruct the overlook and we see a bunch in there. There's one scene and it was a little bit, uh, it, it was a little bit unnecessary, but it was kind of, it was a fun, it was like such a big Easter egg. And I was like, thematically, I'm not sure if it really fits here, but it's fun. It's the, the medical doctor that Danny's friends with. And he goes to talk to him about his experience. It's almost the same office. It's the exact same office. Is it the as, exact same? Because it looked really similar. Yeah, it's meant to. I'm sure. I mean, it's it's not accidental. But yeah, it's the office that Jack first interviews when he first visits the Overlook in the Shining film. And that one is kind of like, oh, this might mean something. I'm not sure if it really does, but I loved it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had the exact same experience where I thought, wait, is this supposed to mean something? Oh, no. Okay. It's just a wink. All right. Yeah. And there were a few winks like that that I did appreciate. Um, yeah, yeah. And they didn't, for the most part, they didn't. They didn't stand out to me as reminders of why this movie wasn't The Shining. They were they were reminders of how great that movie was and the 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 sort of the lineage that this movie is sharing. But but I I still stand by the misgiving I have with a the the sort of the fact that it exists at all and and b what what I am seeing as. Uh, Unfortunately, this seems like a paradox or, or, or hypocritical or contradiction uh, of what happens when a studio gets a hold of a piece of material like this. And, and in most of it is around Rebecca Ferguson's happy band of soul suckers <laughs> that, are, uh, that are going around uh, doing whatever, whatever it is they do, whoever they are, and their little Ghostbuster-style steam traps. or like What, what is that? What, those kinds of things that uh, if you've seen the movie, you know what I mean. And they just feel weirdly out of place in the world of The Shining. So just to let you know, that had nothing to do with the studio. That all came from the mind of a guy named Stephen King, who I think you might... I've got him actually on the podcast. Stephen, come on in. <laughs> you Me, wish. I do. Podcast. <laughs> so, um, so Stephen King. And, so he and came this, up with the little ectoplasm traps. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the the knot, which is the name of that group, is is all his invention. The the novel. It's very close to the novel. Of course, in Stephen King's novel, The Shining. I mean, The Overlook doesn't exist. It blows up at the end of his novel, and Harlan die, doesn't die. So he's still alive at the beginning of the novel. And, and there's some other things, uh, a few different directions. But King, and, and King, of course, is famously not wild about Kubrick's The Shining. He, he just sort of described it as a big, shiny Cadillac, but without an engine. He felt that, you know, what's the point? Jack is crazy at the beginning. You know, Jack Nicholson is crazy as they're driving up there. He doesn't go from not crazy to crazy. <laughs> he's just a crazy guy locked with his family. And I think maybe the interesting thing, and this is where I wanted to get to with that, I, I think you kind of touched upon, which is, I think, fascinating. The Shining novel has the, tells a little bit about the history of this hotel. And so all the ghosts that appear, that we know a little bit where they came from. We know how that woman who's in the bathtub of that hotel room, we know her story. We know uh, of the weird guy who's dressed like a dog that we see for just like uh, you know, what, 30 f frames, if that, in Kubrick's movie, we know what happened to him. We, we, we know the stories because Jack is sort of researching the history of the hotel by bringing up all these boxes from the basement the whole time. And Kubrick did this wild thing by basically saying, I'm not going to tell you any of these stories. I'm just going to show you a woman in the bathtub mm -hmm. rotting. And I'm just going to show you, like, 
this weird, you know, 1920s guy just as like a dog seemingly to, you know, be performing oral sex on another guy. Like, just these images. And it is more terrifying, in my opinion. That's, you know, it's it's crazy. So the the stuff i mean king does describe more that's that's he does he does but isn't that i mean to me that is getting directly to the heart of the the difference between a novel and a film and why adaptations can be so tricky and why so often authors are upset by the cinematic adaptations of their work because what works in a novel to strike fear in your heart and leave you unsettled and can't really sleep is the describing of all of that backstory and laying the foundation and getting you in the head of the woman in the bathtub and the guy in the dog suit or whatever. Whereas in film, it's about the austerity of the image just sitting with you and you don't know what it means. And you've got to fill in that blank and you've got just an hour and a half or two hours to sort of have all this wash over you. To me, in that sense, based on what you're describing, because I have no relationship to the books, Kubrick's adaptation is a kind of perfect adaptation of the novel because it brings all the dread and horror without in cinema in my experience when you bring that kind of detail that kind of description to what we're seeing it robs it of a lot of its power and to me that's the problem with Dr. Sleep if it has a problem is that so much is explained so it is all so clear what is happening and what the stakes are that I'm not left with a sense of dread so that's, I think that's pretty fascinating. So I, I th- big spoiler for folks who maybe only watched half of the movie. The, the, the third act <laughs> in the novel, Dr. Sleep, the third act goes to what is now basically picnic grounds or camping grounds that used to be the Overlook Hotel. Still a dangerous place, like it's a bad spot. In the film, they go back to basically the the locked. It was just you know basically after what happened in The Shining in 1980, they locked the doors. No one went in there again, and they go back there for this final showdown. And it is interesting because we do see like we revisit the two sisters in the hallway. We revisit the guy in the tuxedo with the split head saying, fantastic party, isn't it? We even go back into the, the, the dance ballroom. And now the bartender behind the bar is none other than Danny's dad, Jack, who has been incorporated into this hotel. And, and it's, it's fascinating because the book has a lot of this of like, even though Danny has escaped the hotel, those ghosts are hungering for him. And that's about all we get about what the ghosts are, that they're just hunger, hungry spirits. But I was wondering, so I really dug that, but I could definitely see someone going, no, don't, don't take those images and use them for anything. Those, those twins are not just, or not twins, the sisters are not just monsters. They're, they're kind of holy and, and they shouldn't be used again. You know, to me, the perfect example of what you're talking about and, and what to me in the, it, obviously this happens towards the end of the film and I was already having these feelings and this was sort of the nail in the coffin, pun intended, of, of my feelings about how they were using uh, the, the, the original source material. There is a moment when they recreate the blood in the hallway. It's coming, coming out, out of the, the elevator. Elevator, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's, it's such a, a perfect duplication that I wondered is that from the is that just the original footage or did they reduplicate it or whatever but the one who's seeing it this time is Rebecca Ferguson is the leader of the knot right and she has this look on her face that's a little bit of a wry smile that 
I'm sure you can interpret it any way you want, but I interpreted it as, oh, isn't that cute? And that's almost how I felt the movie was feeling about it, was, oh, cute, look at, look at what the original did. And I thought, how dare you? How dare you make that image a joke? <laughs> that's interesting. I, I did not feel that, but I did think at that moment, I, I, once, I was like, once again, grateful for the performances uh, in uh, in Kubrick's Shining because Shelley Duvall is so terrified and the, the the actor who plays young Danny when he sees images of the two sisters is so outrageously out of your mind terrified and and I think we forget how much those images are sold to us uh, both the elevator and the blood and the images of the of the two girls in the hallway because we go back to the characters who have like insane terror in their eyes and how important that is and I remember at, at that moment in the film thinking she's she's not as terrified as Shelley Duvall was <laughs> <laughs> and I and I I could see an interpretation is well she is evil she is right you know that she's a kindred spirit with whatever is generating that image so so that was more a look of familiarity than than what i'm saying but but i felt on another level there was there was something operating in me and how i felt the movie was treating that source material that that's how i interpreted it and in some ways it to me was the most clear example of what i meant what I mean by the movie feeling like an amusement park ride, a little tour through a safe tour through right. the wild and insane world of, of the shining, which felt very unsafe. Yeah. Like the, I can see what you're saying. Like, you know, Hollywood, those Hollywood mazes, the universal mazes that they do each year, which they do based themed on films. You can see the shining one. You're like, Hey, I know you're not Jack Nicholson, but you've got a similar hairline. <laughs> yeah. And, a, a and, little bit. And you're good. You're and, good. You know, it's I funny. You, you, you bring that up. I remember when you and I, and, and our, our old writing partner, Chris Moss, we used to take meetings on the universal lot and and chris would decide between meetings when we had extra time that we should drive our rental car around the back lot behind the tour trolleys which you and i were terrified we were going to get caught and thrown out before our next meeting but but one of those moments we we were behind the trolley and we're passing we're probably going to get sued now by universal by admitting this but there's we the, should be so lucky there's the psycho house Right. And, and in the part of the tour is Norman Bates comes out and it freaks everyone out on the tour. And then he goes back inside and the tour goes on. But we're behind the trolley. Right. So the trolley leaves and the guy playing Norman Bates like comes back out and smokes a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just and I think he even like waved at us. Like, he hey. waved at us. Yeah, we waved at him. He's like, hey. And he's like, just, you know, just a working actor. He's like, yeah, I'm not I'm not doing a free show for the screenwriters. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I think you kind of hit something there with, with that I was feeling about the actor who plays Jack Nicholson, who you know playing Danny's father, in the, in this. Uh, it does a fine job. I, I yeah. It does the best job you, one could do under the circumstances, but it did have that feeling, a little bit of the the you know central casting bring someone up who looks like Jack. Um, that that added to that sense. And I couldn't also I couldn't stop thinking about. Ready Player One's take uh, on yes. that same idea, which it, that is a book I've read, and and in the book I believe it's Ferris Bueller's Day or no War Games. It's War Games. It's war that, Games, um, yeah. 
that they're sort of doomed to repeat until they get it right. And, and, in, and in Ready Player One, the film, it was The Shining. And, and <laughs> you know, uh, maybe it's embarrassing to admit, but I remember being more uncomfortable with Ready Player One's delve into the world of The Shining than I was in this movie. Oh, I was more uncomfortable with that, too. But probably for different reasons. I mean, for I genuinely reasons. was unsettled and scared of where it was going to go. But I, I think for me, I was, I mean, that that's cool. I mean, Ready I, but I, I, for me, in watching Ready Player One, I, I had that feeling that I was like, I could see someone having this feeling at the end of, the, of Dr. Sleep. Because in Ready Player One, I was like, no, 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 no. The, the, I don't want you to take this as a, a cultural icon. I don't want... Uh, you know, the equivalent, I, I, would, I don't want Humphrey Bogart uh, showing up in an Adam Sandler movie, you know, <laughs> and like, oh, look, I went into the, the bar. It's, you know, don't, oh, I, don't yeah. tell Jack Nicholson in anger management that <laughs> it's not, that's nothing against Adam Sandler. <laughs> uh, it's it's just the idea that uh, and it's just the idea that like. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Those things, it's not fair to take something that has been made culturally amazing and force it into something else. You know, it, I don't want to see Mona Lisa made into a puppet. Um, I, you know, I don't want to hear Bob Dylan's uh, voice be manipulated to sell me washing detergent or whatever. And, and so I was worried that this would do this. Now, for me, it didn't. But but I was like aware of that world. And I think partially this is why it didn't for me. Um, like, I really love... Danny Torrance as a character, I, I, I his journey to sobriety, I, I, I get and is beautiful. And then I think his work as a hospice uh, worker is it just it made me cry. Uh, those scenes of him being a hospice worker, because there's this idea that we are all haunted, and then some of us, uh, some of us sort of use what our curses are to be blessings to others. And some of us allow what occurs to us to uh, damn us to haunt the bar of a Colorado hotel. You know, I I, I agree. I, I think those those moments were really beautiful uh, when he was working in the hospice. And I actually did think of you, knowing that you have done similar work. Um, and I, there were a couple of moments in there, like when he uses his telepathy to calm a patient. Yeah. Uh, was just a beautiful, beautiful moment. Um, so, and that's why I say I, I'm not harshing on this movie. Yeah. It, it's, it's my, my issues are twofold. One is a sort of bigger, bigger issue with what studios can and cannot do in today's entertainment ecosystem, like what they're capable of and not right. capable of. Yeah, I would have been interested to see what would have uh, uh, Mike Flanagan done with this material if it were financed by an A24 or an Annapurna or, you know, a smaller company that is a that would would let you uh, rough it up a little bit. Again, though, Mike was answering to King or as he calls him, Stephen. Well, my second (laughs) my second issue with it then is. Of the two. You know, one thinking of Kubrick, and I don't just mean comparing the two movies, which is unfair, but in terms of the approach to adaptation, I appreciate Kubrick's approach to adaptation, which is a movie is a movie and a book is a book. Yep. And how can we evoke the the horror of what King, who is obviously a master of the horror genre in literature, how can we evoke that same horror on the screen? And I I appreciate his approach 
more than mm. Flanagan doing a more literal adaptation, which results in a more literary adaptation, which just is not the same language as cinematic language. That's interesting. You know, I, I, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting, too, because Mike Flanagan's probably his other biggest kit. It was, it was a haunting of Hill House that was a, on Netflix, that series, which is based on Shirley Jackson's novel, Haunting of Hill House, in which he doesn't follow the book at all. It's complete. He has the character names, but he makes them a family. They're not a family. He makes it. It just, just does incredibly different things, which was really cool. I mean, I, I love that novel, but I also really, really dug that series. But I wonder in this case with the author living, <laughs> he felt a little bit uh, obligated. And, and the fact that it's King and the fact that yes, The Shining yes. has that legacy of disappointing King. I could see where you would feel obligated in some respects. Um, but that also just begs the question of why, why do it? Which is just, I, I know it's not a, a terribly, it's not even an argument I would make too strongly um, it, because, you know, art is art and it's still a great movie and you should see it. But it, it, it has issues for the ways that I have just outlined. So I think it makes sense. We should, oh, by the way, do, yeah. do, you, do you know the one actor who I think just one, there might have been more, but the only actor I know of that appears both in Kubrick's The Shining and in... Uh, Doctor Sleep. Um, no. Danny Lloyd. I was gonna say is it, it, it must be Danny. Yeah, yeah. He he's in there. He he plays. Uh, I think he's playing. Oh, you know, I think he plays the baseball player. Uh, he plays his dad. He so oh. in the in when they're watching the baseball game. Interesting. All right. All right. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Yes. Are you gonna go? So I. To, to talk sequels that you're never going to go see, you should check out Haunting of Hill House. He did a, a beautiful job in that in that series. His movie, Gerald's Game, also an adaptation of Stephen King's, I thought was so brilliant. I wasn't wild. It has sort of a prolonged uh, epilogue, and I, I wasn't really wild about that, but I, I thought it was such a beautiful film. I geeked out over it. Uh, he made a film with Intrepid and Blumhouse called Hush, which was also picked up by Netflix, which I thought was brilliant. It's a home invasion story of a woman who has, is hearing impaired. And, and he's done a few others. But, like, the guy is constantly working. He's a real powerhouse. And uh, for Mike Flanagan, I know this film didn't do great at the box office, but I'm just going to be continually excited about movies that he puts out. Well, should we talk about our uh, favorite scene, least favorite scene? Yeah, yeah. Can you go first? Because I, I forgot to think about this one. <laughs> Well, it, it, you know, this this almost feels like a, a not a great candidate for this little segment because, again, there's so much that is good about the movie. Um, yeah. But that, you didn't, but it's fair, you didn't like the key monster. I'm, I'm actually thinking about that. You didn't like Rose the Hat. Like, you weren't scared of Rose the Hat. No. And so for me, Rose the Hat and that whole gang, they were scary to me. They were eerie to me. I, I really liked them. But you, if you didn't like them, then that, that does... That's hard to be scared if you're right, not scared of the key right. monster. Yeah. So uh, there are a lot of scenes that I enjoyed, and and one of them might have been might be that that one in the hospice when he uses his telepathy to calm a dying patient. I thought that was a really a really beautiful scene. I liked the the mindscape scenes. There was a little bit of a, <gasps> especially when Abra was in uh, the Rose the Hat's mind. There was almost a kind of Harry Potter esque quality to that um <laughs> which just sort of played into my feeling this is a big studio movie i loved again his use of dissolves 
were yeah. were incredibly effective um, in terms of evoking that sense of the past. And I do think his his use of the Overlook Hotel was really great. The the there was a, there's a scene, and I guess I'll just pick this one somewhat to be arbitrary because I think there are a lot of great scenes in the movie. It's not like a lot of the movies we've watched where it felt like all of them were bad, and I could just choose uh, one that would stand out. Not, not every movie can be uh, the unicorn store, Russell. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and there is a moment when Rebecca Ferguson walks into, when Rose the Hat walks into that main room, the, the big lobby, and there's Danny and Abra standing on the stairs, and he's holding the axe. That, to me, was a, was a kind of perfect blend that evoked the original in that yeah. production design, where you really felt like you were back in the hotel. Yeah. But also the overlay of the new storyline taking over that old story. And in that, that the, the whole staging, the blocking of the actors, the way he set up the frame, I thought that was really great. Okay, that, I agree, I agree. Okay, so I do have a least favorite uh, of it. And it's kind of interesting. So it is that scene that we talked about in the doctor's office. In, in, in the film, Danny goes up to a fellow AA member. It says, I know where you lost your watch. Mm-hmm. And it's a doctor and they meet. That character is a much bigger part in the novel. But then they meet in the doctor's office and it's clearly also the manager's office from the Overlook. And the reason is, is like, you know, narratively, this is unnecessary. It doesn't it doesn't add anything like if you cut this from the film we we wouldn't we wouldn't be any less informed or anything and it was a sort of forceful wink of like is there a reason that this no it doesn't really do anything i thought and so if i had to choose my least favorite it was that because i was like that that for me was like cutesy that felt a little cutesy okay yeah yeah i yeah uh but i would have missed it i mean i wouldn't have known to miss it if it wasn't there <laughs> Yeah, but I would miss it. Well, it, it does do one thing that's important. It sets up the idea that uh, Danny, you owe a debt, and that's that's the like a thing you owe a debt. Like uh, that's yeah. that's what the doctor tells him. I tell you one thing we didn't discuss, Russell. That I don't, we don't have time now, but I want to discuss at some point. The book and the film touch upon something that the earlier book and the earlier film also touch upon because this goes a little deeper. It's maybe interesting for me as a thinker of of both these films. The original Shining and the original book, of course, have images of survival after death that are terrifying. There are people trapped in horrific moments. There is this anger. There's no happy ghosts Hmm. in the Kubrick Shining or in uh, King's novel. In Doctor Sleep, you do have Danny saying, we go on after this, mm-hmm. and in the book, even more so that this is a this is a sweet thing, and and that there's a possibility of like peace after, and there's definitely some kind of survival after death. Uh, the movie is is not as clear that there's a ha- there's only one happy guess. Well, ghost. there's Halloran, but there's also Halloran. I mean, spoiler, Danny at the end. Uh, right, both yes, seem yeah. to affirm the idea, and and. And there is a moment when Halloran says, the, the last time he talks to Danny, he says, yes. this may be the last time I see you. Uh, it, you know, it's getting fuzzier and fuzzier. I can't remember how it's getting less and yeah, less Yeah, this, this world is a dream to me. Right. Um, yeah. Which would suggest that, that they are, because one could, could argue, well, they're a happy ghost, but they're still a ghost trapped on earth. But no, it seems like there is some other place. Yes, yes. So there, there's like, the, it, and I find it like really fascinating that, Oh, uh, okay. The, I, even King has sort of said, 
by the way, I tell a bunch of scary stories, but I think this piece. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or at least his characters or his narratives do. Right. And, and, and that's all I, that's all I need, you know, uh, in the sense of, you know, me personally, we go on, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I don't need, I don't need, you know, there, there's a kind of a, a genre of film that likes to explore what heaven is like, or even what hell is like. And, and to me, those are always sort of uninteresting, if not boring, because mm. the mystery is what is enchanting about what happens next. All I need to know is that there is something. Mm. And that's a whole other sort of theological question about why even frame it that way, what I need right. to know. That's true. That, that will, that'll be our next podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking um, of. Oh, I, I meant our next full podcast. Next episode, next episode of The Horror, uh, I have decided that we're going to watch Jordan Peele's Us, another 2019 release, Jordan Peele's second feature film, um, made bucos of money, and I think I think you'll dig it. I have the screener at home, and I have, I, have not, I have not watched it. Uh, I liked Get Out, so... I know this one, apparently, I mean, can you get crazier than Get Out in terms of the twists? But um, I hear this one may, um, may top it. So yeah, it's, 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 it's very different than Get Out. It's very different than Get Out. But uh, you also see Peel working with a bigger budget. And, uh, and he's definitely, like, visually having a lot of fun. Well, all right, then. And that's the horror. Woohoo! Uh, thanks, Owen, for forcing me out of the house and into the multiplex to see Dr. Sleep, regardless of my misgivings. And thank you, Russell, for watching it. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and say it was my pleasure. Okay. Until next time, 